It is the sentence of this court that Theseus Cyprianus be executed with the sword. Cyprian, thanks be to God. Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod President Pastor Matt Harrison speaking at this year's Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. So, I would rather lay down on this spot and have my head chopped off than give up the Word of God. But with that strong, biblically informed conscience, I shall face my day and age. You shall face this day and age. We will confess Christ no matter what we face. And we will bear witness to a better way in Jesus. Come what may. Amen. You can watch and listen to Pastor Matt Harrison making the case for the Lutheran option from the 2023 Making the Case Conference for a $300 gift by Labor Day. You can access an on-demand video stream or download a podcast of the entire conference. Order today at issuesetc.org. He was raised in a Christian home, but in time he rejected the faith of his mother, Monica. And for about a decade, he lived essentially as a heretic and then later as a pagan. But Monica never gave up and she never stopped praying. And eventually God answered those prayers and Augustine was converted to the Christian faith and went on to become one of the greatest and most influential Christian theologians in human history. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Well, the church remembers Monica and her son yesterday and today. We're going to be remembering them. Dr. Carl Beckwith joins us. He's professor of historical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, and author of the books, The Holy Trinity and Hilary of Poitiers on the Trinity. Dr. Beckwith, welcome back. Thank you. It's nice to be back. What was the state of Christianity in the mid-4th century? Yeah, so by the time you get to the mid-4th century, so Augustine is born around 354. The middle part of that century, we now see that Christianity has been tolerated by Constantine in the West and then eventually in the 320s in the East as well. So by the time you get to around the year 350, the empire is thought to be maybe 50% Christian at that point. Numbers are always difficult, but somewhere around 50% Christian. Christianity itself, however, is really embroiled in a protracted debate on the Trinity. Mid-century, I would say that you see that most of the bishops are leaning in an anti-Nicene Arian direction. It's several strong and robust, steadfast in the faith bishops like Athanasius or Hilary of Poitiers, who are really laboring on behalf of Scripture, the Council of Nicaea, to be faithful to what Scripture teaches about the Holy Trinity. You also have, though, in the mid-4th century, the last anti-Christian emperor, Julian the Apostate. So there's quite a lot of things going on in the middle of the century, just as Augustine is born. And Augustine will, in some sense, contribute to resolving a lot of these different conflicts that we see in the middle part of the fourth century. Why does the church remember Monica, Augustine's mother? Well, I suppose the easiest answer to that is we remember Monica because Augustine talks so much about her. He describes for us his mother in his very famous book, The Confessions, 
It's a book that he wrote once he became bishop. So Augustine, very briefly, we said he's born in 354. He's baptized in 387, and I think we'll talk a little bit more about his conversion to Christianity, which owes a lot to his mother, Monica. He becomes a priest in 391 and bishop in 395, and it's right around that time that he writes this really remarkable book, The Confessions, that narrates for us his spiritual and intellectual journey to Christianity. And it's in that book in particular that we learn quite a lot about his mother, Monica, and a little bit about his father, Patrick. Now, he only names Monica once in the Confessions, but he tells us about her instrumental role in praying for Augustine, in encouraging Augustine in his reading of Scripture and trying to encourage him to embrace Christianity. And as Augustine recounts in the Confessions, he wanders far from Christianity. But eventually, he's baptized, and his mother is there at his baptism. And it's because of the role of his mother in his own journey to Christianity, the significant role that she played, that the Church rightly remembers Monica, the faithful mother, caring for her wayward son, praying for him and encouraging him, and then rejoicing in seeing uh, her son baptized. I'd say that's why we remember Monica. Do we know anything about her life? We do. And again, a lot of this is because Augustine, it's really in Book 9 of the Confessions, after his own conversion, and he starts to recount sort of the time between his conversion to Christianity as he's now a catechumen and his actual baptism then in 387. His mother is with him. He's in Italy, and he just recounts in Book 9 all these details of her life. So we know, for example, that Monica was born into a Christian home. She belonged to Catholic Christianity, and I put it that way because in North Africa, in the fourth century and in Augustine's day, we have another sectarian version of Christianity that is actually in the majority. It's We refer to them now as the Donatists, and the Donatists arose following the great persecution at the beginning of the fourth century. This is a group that really emphasizes uh, purity and a pure form of Christianity. So Monica's growing up aware of this. Some of her relatives succumb to Donatism, but she does not. So she grows up in a Catholic Christian home. We know that she, when she comes of age, she marries Patrick. Patrick is not Christian. He's a pagan. He's somewhat indifferent to religion, but he permits Monica to raise her children uh, in the faith. And we know that Augustine is her oldest son. She has another son, Navigius, the younger son who doesn't embrace Christianity until later on, and then an unnamed daughter, at least one unnamed daughter, who does in fact become Christian, and in fact the head of a, uh, a convent that uh, will uh, be in, in conversation with Augustine uh, in his life as a bishop. But as she continues to grow and, and nurture her children, we know especially that she's concerned with Augustine and his waywardness and she follows Augustine when he goes off to Italy. She's with him, as I said, at his baptism. And as they're returning to North Africa, she dies at the port city of Ostia in Italy. An interesting archaeological tidbit is we have a portion of the inscription that was written on her tomb. It still survives today, which is yet another reason, I suppose, that we remember Monica beyond Augustine's own confessions. What were Augustine's beliefs before his conversion? 
Well, when Augustine was young, Monica enrolled him as a catechumen, but he did not receive baptism. There's different reasons for that, and a lot of this has to do with the fourth century and and coming to terms with a proper understanding of sin and baptism and repentance. But nonetheless, she enrolls Augustine as a young child, as a catechumen. But as Augustine continues to grow, he discovers these great intellectual abilities. His father, though he doesn't have great means, has enough to begin to pay for Augustine's education. And as Augustine goes off to school, we would say, he continues to move further and further away from Monica's faith, especially to her own dismay. He tells us in the Confessions, for example, that he falls in with a group called the Manichaeans. Manichaeism, it's a strange religion, and Augustine certainly didn't embrace all the tenets of the Manichaeans, but he does fall in with them for about 10 years of his life, and principally, he tells us, it's because they have a very easy way of explaining difficult questions in his day, difficult questions on good and especially evil, and how we account for the presence of evil in our world. But it's in falling in with the Manichaeans that Augustine develops strong opinions against Christianity. When Augustine comes back home, for example, after embracing these Manichaean views, Monica locks him out of the house. She won't allow him to come into her house because of these views that he holds. Eventually, she relents. She has a a vision, Augustine tells us, that she sees that one day Augustine will be where she is. That's how she puts it. And the interpretation that she gives to that is Augustine will eventually repent of these false beliefs and embrace Christianity. Augustine tries to dissuade her of that view, and she's resolute, and she says, you're wrong. This is what I've seen, and this is true, and it it will happen. And so because of that, she will uh, embrace Augustine, allow him to come back into the home, and, and then eventually, as I say, go off to Italy with him. Well, for about 10 years, then, Augustine is, is caught up in this Manichaean teaching and, and view. He tells us in the Confessions that he will eventually move away from that, He comes to uh, meet one of these great teachers of the Manichaeans named Faustus. Faustus is supposed to answer all of Augustine's difficult and hard questions, and he's unable to do so. And Augustine is frustrated by that and begins to read, as he tells us, books by philosophers, other philosophers in the ancient world. And they begin to free him from these material notions that he had of God and and of the sort of worldview that he had embraced. But he's also encountering Ambrose, the great bishop of Milan. So when he goes to Italy and Monica comes with him, Monica becomes a member in Milan at Ambrose's church. And Augustine begins to go to some of these services, not because he's interested really in Christianity, but he's taken with Ambrose, the speaker, this eloquent preacher. And what he discovers is that he had several misconceptions of Catholic Christianity, and especially of how the early Christians read and understood things like the Old Testament, how they understood things like good and evil. And these are things that the Manichaeans had misconstrued and sort of taught him in ways that weren't, in fact, what Christians were teaching. And then, as I said, he begins to read, as he puts it, books by these Platonists. And so intellectually, 
Augustine tells us he's been able to free himself from these intellectual difficulties that he had with Christianity. And in that sense, he's free of false teaching, but he's not free of this other thing that has plagued him since his teenage years, and that is his own addiction to sex. He has a concubine. He ends up having a child, a Deodatus. He tells us in his confessions that he's simply in love with bodily love and in love with his concubine and and the pleasures of the body, and, and he simply cannot free himself from that. And that will become then the last great hurdle that he needs to overcome in converting to Christianity. Dr. Carl Beckwith is our guest. We're remembering Augustine and his mother, Monica. On the other side, how does Augustine describe his own conversion? This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we continue our adventures and acts with spiritual blackmail, the gospel comes to Thessalonica, noble Bereans, Paul in Athens Part 1, and Paul in Athens Part 2. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. Have you ever pondered the limits of archaeology? What can it tell us? What can't it tell us? Well, Dr. David Adams takes up this topic in the September issue of The Lutheran Witness, where he discusses the fact that archaeology ultimately doesn't prove anything. It simply gives us the facts that have to be interpreted. To learn more, pick up your copy of The Lutheran Witness, visit cph.org witness or the Lutheran Witness website, witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the world from a Lutheran perspective. Luther Academy provides additional theological education for our mission partners around the world, specifically pastors who are asking for additional education but do not have the necessary resources in their own church bodies. By donating to Luther Academy today, you will be supplying food, housing, books, professors, and travel for Lutheran pastors who attend our conferences. To learn more about Luther Academy and how you can donate today, visit lutheracademy.com. LutherAcademy.com. The faith once for all delivered to the saints. You're listening to Issues Etc. At the center of our campus is Kramer Chapel, and there's a reason for that. Issues Etc. guest Dr. Arthur Just. Because it is the heartbeat of Concordia Theological Seminary. It is where we go to hear the voice of Jesus and frequently be fed with the body and blood of Christ. We sometimes call it our Jerusalem. Kramer Chapel points to the classroom, which we sometimes call Athens. It is there that we do theology, biblical studies, systematic theology, practical theology, history. We love theology here, and we love the study of it, and we love coming together in worship. It's one of the things that gives us great joy, joy in worshiping, joy in studying theology, Concordia Theological Seminary is all about the joy of being in Jesus. Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, ctsfw.edu. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. 
Dr. Carl Beckwith is our guest. He's professor of historical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, remembering late 4th and early 5th century North African Bishop Augustine and his mother Monica. Dr. Beckwith, how does Augustine himself describe his conversion? Well, it's it's a very famous scene, again, in the Confessions. Uh, it's in Book 8, and he says he's in a garden, and he's he's really overcome, in a sense, with sort of this spiritual struggle that he's having. He, he really does want to be freed from these lustful ideas and this addiction that he has. He says that he hears children playing in the courtyard near him. And this is a very famous scene that so many people talk about, and, and they recount this in the Latin. So it's tole et lege, pick up and read, pick up and read. He doesn't know what that means. He doesn't know of any game that uses that sort of saying. But there he is. He's in the garden. He's with his best friend. His name is Olypius, who will also become a significant bishop in the early church. But he looks around, and there is a collection of Paul's letters. So he grabs it. He picks it up, and he reads. He grabs it, and he simply opens it up. And this is something that people did in the early church. They did this with Virgil and the Aeneid. They would just open it up, put their finger on the page, and they would try to sort of read prophetically that which they saw before them. The church frowns on this sort of practice, but it's actually something that Augustine did that led to his own conversion. So he opens up Paul's letters, and the first thing that he sees, he says, is Romans 13, verse 13 and 14, which reads, not in riots and drunken parties, not in eroticism and indecencies, not in strife and rivalry, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in its lusts. And Augustine then, he says, I neither wish nor needed to read further. At once with the last words of this sentence, it was as if a light of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart. All the shadows of doubt were dispelled. And he says to God in prayer, you have now turned me, you have converted me to yourself. And with that, Augustine is freed. Now he'll later reflect on this. He's freed by God's grace from his own addiction to the flesh, and he is turned. His heart has been turned from himself to God. And it's from this moment forward that he seeks out baptism in the church and becomes then the great pastor and bishop and theologian that we remember him to be. How does he become a bishop? Well, it's actually an interesting story. So one of the things that uh, would happen in the early church is that it's by vote of the people that a person would be seized to be bishop. Well, Augustine is a priest, and, and he tells us that he was very careful in traveling from one city to the next because he knew that this could happen, that the people with just this popular acclamation, they could say, we want so-and-so as our bishop. And this person then, after being considered by other area bishops, would in fact become the bishop of, of whatever city. So he tells us that he was very careful uh, in traveling around. And well, he happened to be in Hippo Regis, which is in North Africa, just to the west of Carthage along the coast. He thought it was safe. There was a bishop in Hippo Regis, but nonetheless, he's there. The people, uh, they know him. Everyone knows Augustine at this point. He's a very accomplished professor and rhetorician, and now he's this famous priest. 
and the people seize him. And he is made, in a sense, co-bishop until the death of the bishop there in Hippo Regis, and then he becomes the bishop for the people in Hippo. What heresies did Augustine encounter? Well, one of the remarkable things about Augustine is in part that he lives such a long life. So he's born in 354. He doesn't die until 430. So he lives into his 70s. And there's a sense in which, although Augustine writes kind of between the second and third ecumenical council, right? So we think of Constantinople in 381 and then Ephesus in 430. Augustine doesn't attend any of those great councils. He was invited to Ephesus. He wouldn't have made it. He passes away. But he writes between these great ecumenical councils, and yet Augustine is, in a sense, caught up with every great heresy of the early church. So because he was someone so familiar with Manichaeism, and so many people were led astray by Manichaeism, Augustine spends a significant amount of literary output and his preaching and his letter writing refuting the errors of Manichaeism. And in fact, it's really because of Augustine that we know so much about false religion from his own day. Well, no sooner does he finish, in a sense, refuting Manichaeism that he has to then address Donatism, which too is this great heresy in his day. Now, Donatism in particular was difficult because it was taught. Now, there's a lot going on with Donatism, but it's this particular aspect that we remember Augustine's contribution for. They were teaching that not only did the church need to be morally pure, but the priest or the bishop needed to have a pure moral character to properly celebrate the sacraments of the church. So if the bishop in any way was morally compromised, then the sacrament itself was morally compromised, and you then would be morally compromised and polluted by that which this bishop had done. Well, Augustine, in several of his writings, aims to refute the Donatist and especially to return priority to God's Word. And so very famously, he says it's the very Word of God. When added to the element of water and holy baptism or bread and wine and the Lord's Supper, that makes a sacrament what it is that the sacrament is authored by God, and he is the one, by the power of his word, that makes it what he claims it to be. Well, that statement becomes very famous throughout the history of the church. It's used and repeated by our own Lutheran fathers and found in the book of Concord. But it's that chiefly that Augustine does for us by returning the priority to God's word and the power to bring about the sacrament. Well, no sooner does he finish with the Donatist, and he has to deal with paganism, the fall of Rome. And he does this in his great work, The City of God, maybe one of the greatest sort of cultural apologetic pieces in the history of the church. And then at the same time, he has to deal with Pelagianism. And it's Pelagius who is encouraging people to do what they can to save themselves, that they can be perfectly righteous and free of all sin simply by exercising their human free will. And so it's Augustine who returns us to the scriptures, to the priority of grace, and to Christ and his salvation for us. That controversy with Pelagianism, it begins in earnest around 411, 412 with Augustine, goes to the end of his life. And it's in the midst of all of that that he's also writing The City of God, and he takes up the arguments against the Arians and the Homoians of his day in his great work 
on the Trinity. So there's a sense in which Augustine is just embroiled in controversy after controversy throughout his life, but it's also what makes Augustine great is that he returns us in each and every one of these heresies to God's Word, to the Scriptures, that we could reflect more deeply on what God has revealed to us in answering all of these particular challenges in his day and how we continue to do the same in our own. Well, Dr. Beckwith has already mentioned two of Augustine's writings, Confessions and the City of God. We'll talk about the rest of them after this. Jesus describes baptism as new birth. Dr. Richard Davenport, author of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for August, The Baptismal River, Studying the Sacrament Throughout Scripture. As big a deal as your own birth was, this should be that much and more. Learn more about this new Bible study, The Baptismal River, at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. This fall in creation is bested by tornado, hurricane, flood, pandemic, and more. LCMS Disaster Response helps our congregations, their pastors, and other church workers to reach out to their members and neighbors with mercy, which flows from Christ's altar. We offer quality volunteer training, help for congregational readiness and response, and disaster grant funding. To learn more, visit lcms.org disaster. That's lcms.org disaster. Christological, creedal, confessional. You're listening to Issues Etc. You wish your classical school could do more for struggling learners? Uncertain where to begin? The Memoria Press Schools Division includes Cheryl Swope, author of Simply Classical, a beautiful education for any child. The Schools Division will happily assist your school. Memoria Press offers an entire line of special needs resources for teaching math, reading, spelling, and more. Contact schools at memoriapress.com or order directly from simplyclassical.com with coupon code LPR23. Labor Day is one week from today, and it's the final day for you to order video recordings and audio downloads of the 2023 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. The recordings contain presentations by journalists Mark and Molly Hemingway, Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod President Matt Harrison, San Francisco Archbishop Salvatore Cordelione, Kyle Mann of the Babylon Bee, Pastor Peter Bender of the Concordia Catechetical Academy, and Pastor Will Whedon of The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. For a $300 donation, we'll send you a link, username, and password. You can order online at issuesetc.org or by giving us a call, 618-223-8385. We're remembering Augustine and Monica with Dr. Carl Beckwith of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Beckwith, you've mentioned two of Augustine's writings, City of God and Confessions. How would you introduce us to Augustine's works? Well, I mean, Augustine has written so much, and I think the the works that are probably best known from Augustine happen to also be some of his more difficult works. The Confessions, of course, is the spiritual autobiography that he offers to us, but at the very end of the Confessions, he begins to get into very difficult 
exegetical questions on the beginning of Genesis. The City of God, 22 books, over a thousand pages, is Augustine's attempt to confront the false teachings of his day, especially found with the pagans, that focus on what it means to live rightly as a child of God in our world, bearing witness to the love of God. But I tell you what, Augustine covers every theme you could imagine in the city of God. It's often been said it's something of a systematic theology from Augustine. He talks about the interpretation of Scripture. He talks about worship. He talks about liturgy. He talks about grace and the Trinity and Christology. He talks about all of the great issues that we could name. But we also have remarkable things like a commentary on the Psalms, probably his longest work, continuous work, if we were to think about it in that way, where he thinks very deeply about a Christological reading of the Psalms and what it means to be part of the body of Christ, the church itself, as we see that too in the Psalms. He has a magnificent commentary on the Gospel of John, one of, again, his great exegetical works. He also has several catechetical works. The Enchiridion is a work that a lot of people read that dates from the mid-420s, exhibiting some of the mature insights that we see with Augustine toward the end of his life. So there's so many writings by Augustine, letters and sermons, a significant number of Pelagian works on the Spirit and the letters, a work that Luther himself commends that Augustine wrote against the Pelagians. So really a whole host of writings from him that uh, you really have to ask, what am I interested in? And Augustine's probably written something on the topic. You had mentioned Martin Luther. Talk about Augustine's influence on that 16th century reformer. Well, Augustine's influence, it's significant. Luther himself, of course, is an Augustinian friar, and Luther mentions several writings by Augustine early on as being influential in his own critique of late medieval understandings of grace and salvation. We know that the faculty at the University of Wittenberg is reading several writings by Augustine, especially his anti-Pelagian writings. Luther names, though, the Spirit and the Letter as an example of a proper understanding of justification and grace. He acknowledges that Augustine doesn't always speak with the greatest clarity when it comes to the imputed righteousness of Christ, but that Augustine does point us to the significance of grace for our salvation. And because of that, Luther finds great comfort in seeing that what he's arguing against in his own day, Augustine himself was also arguing against in his own. Where would Martin Luther have parted ways theologically with Augustine? Yeah, well, if we highlight areas of agreement or or similarity, right, they share views on the depth of sin and the impact of sin on the human will and the significance of sin on all human actions. And therefore, both of them emphasize the necessity and priority of grace. They don't quite think, though, in the same terms when it comes to what we would call theological anthropology. I guess that's how a theologian would put it. But what they're really getting at is how we understand the human person, right? So for Luther, 
we are simultaneously saint and sinner, that in ourselves we're holy and completely sinner, but in Christ we are saints, we are imputed with his righteousness and his holiness, and therefore we are justified in Christ by what he has done for us. We receive that as a free gift, and therefore that righteousness avails for our salvation. Augustine would not have put it quite that way. Augustine thinks more of the progress of the Christian life, the transformation of the sinner into saint. Uh, and so we would say, for example, where Augustine would say that we're semel eustus et peccator, Augustine would say we're partum partum, we're part saint and part sinner. And that's significant. That's a significant difference between them. That means that for Augustine, sanctification itself is contributing to our understanding of salvation. Now, with that said, we have to bear in mind that while Luther's making use of Augustine and finding great comfort in Augustine, the opponents that he faces in his day are different than what Augustine is facing in his day. And therefore, Augustine speaks in one way against the Pelagians, where Luther is speaking against what we would call the, the semi-Pelagians of the late medieval period. The issues have shifted a little bit, and so we would expect them to speak a little differently. And, and really, I think the generous way of putting this is that Luther is clarifying in important ways Augustine's insights on Scripture, but clarifying them in light of a more robust challenge from this late medieval teaching on salvation. And we can be thankful for that. And we can appreciate what Luther is doing for us and returning us again to the scriptures in light of some of these insights from Augustine, but pointing us back to the scriptures for a clear understanding of justification by faith. What would you say is Augustine's major contribution to Christian theology? Well, you know, in part, again, it's because Augustine deals with so many different heresies and false teachings in his day that he has simply written so much and said so much that, honestly, any Christian in the West that is Orthodox has been influenced in some way uh, by Augustine. Uh, but I would say his greatest contribution is probably what, what Luther was putting his finger on, that Augustine is first and foremost a great doctor of grace, the unmerited favor of God in Christ for us. And Augustine does this. He points us to Christ. He points us uh, to God's grace and the necessity of that grace for all the things that we do in life. And that, I would say, is probably his, his great contribution. What's your favorite Augustine quote? Well, I suppose the quote that so many of your listeners are probably familiar with comes from the beginning of his confessions. And I think it, it really does summarize, in a sense, Augustine's theology. He begins with a prayer to God, and he says in that prayer that our hearts are restless until they rest in you, that our heart finds its rest as it abides in God, in the perfect salvation that he brings to us in Christ, which we come to know by the working of the Holy Spirit, and that there we find our right understanding, our right identity, and our proper rest. I think that's a great quote that, like I say, it captures so much of Augustine. Why, then, is Augustine regarded as one of the greatest church fathers? He's probably among, in the Western church, probably among the top six. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's, again, what we've been talking about, that Augustine confronted in his day all sorts of false teaching, right? The Donatists want to look to the self, to the moral purity of the self, to validate God's Word. And Augustine says, no, that God's Word is sufficient in itself, and it is God's Word that renders the sacraments efficacious and gracious for us. In his response to the Pelagians, we cannot save ourselves. Our salvation is in Christ. It is by the gift of grace that we are turned from our own sin, and we are turned to Christ, and we see then his salvation for us. And even in the life of faith, the sanctification that we have, it's all a gift of God's grace and worked by the Holy Spirit as his love is poured into our hearts and as we go forth loving and serving our neighbor. These things are significant for any Orthodox reading of Scripture. We have more things that we would want to say in light of later controversy, but those are things that are important for us to return to. Uh, My own area of research is on Augustine's late Trinitarian writings, and as I continue to study them, I continue to see the contemporary relevance of those writings for our own day and those who would seek to undermine our pro-Nicene faith, our Orthodox confession of the Trinity. Augustine has a lot to offer in terms of exegesis that is still very relevant for the church today. How does the church best remember both Augustine and his mother, Monica? Well, now there I would say that we should remember them as Augustine invites us to remember them both in the confessions. And that is both are sinners, Both are flawed, and they're redeemed by Christ, and it is in Christ alone that they have that gift of a life. We can remember especially with Monica, be thankful for her persistence as a mother, praying for her children, and being persistent in her faith and pursuing Augustine. Even when he flees to Italy, she leaves North Africa, she goes to Italy to be with him, to continue praying for him, and she gets to delight in seeing his baptism. She was there for it, and I think that's a wonderful thing to remember. Dr. Carl Beckwith is professor of historical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. He's author of the books, The Holy Trinity and Hilary of Poitiers on the Trinity. Learn about studying the vocations of pastor or deaconess at ctsfw.edu or by calling 1-800-481-2155, forming servants in Jesus Christ to teach the faithful Reach the Lost and Care for All, Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Beckwith, thanks. Thank you. Tomorrow on Issues Etc., we'll look forward to Sunday morning, according to the one-year lectionary, talking with Pastor Peter Bender about the parable of the Good Samaritan. And on Wednesday, we'll discuss the false masculinity of Andrew Tate with Pastor Jeff Hammer. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc., is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. I am beautiful because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am accepted because I'm a part of His family through Jesus' shed blood.
Unity Lutheran School in East St. Louis, Illinois, shines the light of Christ in one of the most impoverished cities in America. Learn how to support their mission work at unityesl.org. Unityesl.org. Today, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I say yes to God in His ways. The Grace of God, the Church's music, the Lord's Supper every service every Sunday, preaching Christ crucified and risen, our hope for years to come, there is hope in St. Louis, Hope Lutheran Church, that is. 5218 Neosho Street, St. Louis, Missouri. Find us on the web at hopelutheranstl.org. Bahama Mama. Ocean Pacific, Paradise Island. Retreat from the heat with the shaved ice snow cone from Tropical Snow in Caseyville, Illinois. It's right across the street from Collinsville High School. Tropical Snow is open daily from 1 to 9. Premium snow, epic flavors, lots of love. Tropical Snow, across the street from Collinsville High School at 2134 South Morrison Avenue in Caseyville. 